Drew and Jonathan Scott here to tell you that with the American Family Insurance Home Quote Tool, you can easily design a customized policy for your dream home right from the comfort of your couch. And fun paint fact, there are over 150 shades of white, like Hello White, Fluffy Bunny, Eggshell. They get it. Explore the AmFam Home Quote Tool at amfam.com home to learn more about your policy coverage options. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Products not available in every state. Coda has a new way to pay. Now you can use the Transit mobile app to plan, track, and pay for your Coda ride. For a limited time, everyone who creates a Coda account in the Transit app will get a $4.50 credit. What are you waiting for? Download the Transit app today. This morning, I want to share from God's Word, and I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51. This is a prayer of repentance that David wrote. It was his prayer. He penned it down after he stuffed up. You remember what happened? David fell into sin. He was tempted, and he ended up committing adultery, and he had the husband of Bathsheba murdered, knocked off literally in order to cover up his wrongdoing. This is David's prayer of repentance after he got caught, after he was exposed. Mm. Let's start reading at verse 1. I'm just going to read the whole psalm. It's not lengthy. David says this, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. David says, According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you, God, may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, David makes this statement. He says, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. It's an amazing truth is what he's saying here. Is hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast or right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise." Listen to this. This is the key two verses right here. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure design. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word this morning. 
We thank you for the truth of your great grace. We thank you that you work in our hearts, Father, to bring us to a true repentance, Lord. And Father, we pray that just as David experienced the sure mercies of the Lord, that we would know that today. We give you honor and we give you glory for this word. Father, I pray that you would just penetrate our hearts with your love and your conviction that we might surrender ourselves completely to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The title of my message today is The Sacrifice of Brokenness. The Sacrifice of Brokenness. You know, the Bible is replete with examples of individuals, testimonies of people who have come to know firsthand the mercy of the Lord. I mean, just glance throughout the scriptures, right? There's extortionists, thieves, prostitutes, tax collectors, politicians, lawyers, at least one doctor. And there are foul-mouthed fishermen. they are people from just this wide cross-section of humanity, the full gamut socioeconomically from all nations, all generations, and all classes. And God is a merciful God. We know that, isn't he? He converts people. He changes people. He turns their life around. But one of the individuals that I personally just love is David. His story is, is absolutely amazing. And he just seems to stand out in Scripture as really being an extreme benefactor of the grace of God. Someone who experienced God's mercy unlike many other people. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3, the faithfulness of God in keeping his covenant with his people is equated at, to God's mercy that he showed to David. Listen to this, Isaiah 55, 3. Incline your ear, God's saying to Israel, come to me here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. So David's story is, it's a saga, really, of the great redemptive power of God. David starts off, we know, as a lowly shepherd, but eventually he's elevated to the lofty position of king, both over Judah and Israel. And he becomes one of the most powerful leaders on the earth and one of the most wealthiest, wealthiest of men on the earth during that time. Now, David, for the most part, was a good leader. The Bible tells us in Psalm 78, 72, that he shepherded Israel according to the integrity of his heart, and he guided them by skillfulness of hands. However, later on, when at the zenith of his popularity and power, at a time when David had really seen much of what God had called him to do fulfilled, something began to happen in David's life. A time when he had subjugated many of, his, many of his enemies and had made significant progress in achieving the will of God. David's heart begins to turn from the Lord. David begins to turn away from God, the ways of the Lord. He falls into gross sin. He commits adultery with a woman who is married, and then he has her husband executed in order to cover up his tracks. It's a, it's a terrible story. We know uh, it's documented in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how is it that godly people... Godly individuals, particularly leaders who are so close to God, who are on fire for God, fall into sin. What is, what is it that causes them to trip up and to fall into sin? 
Well, I believe the Bible sheds light on this very clearly when we look at David as our example. What was the underlying cause of David's failure? Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse number 1. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, it says this. Look at this. In the springtime when kings go to war, in the springtime when kings go to war, what did David do? David remained at Jerusalem. David was a king, right? So at the springtime when kings go to war, where was David? David remained at Jerusalem. Now, first of all, we need to ask ourselves, why is it that kings were, would go to war in the springtime? Let me give you at least three reasons. First of all, spring was a time when they went to war because the weather was warmer and easier for men to camp without difficulty. Secondly, the rain had eased up and sometimes even snow, and the pathways could be accessed with significantly less risk of chariots and horses becoming stuck in the mud. Thirdly, it was actually the time of the wheat and barley harvest, and an invading army could live off of the food from the harvest as it moved across the landscape conquering. So it's a time when they would go out to war. Now, here's the thing that we understand about this. First of all, we know that there were kings that were not good kings. We know that there were kings that literally wanted to uh, capture the land that belonged to God's people. So recognize that you have an, an enemy. Recognize that your adversary wants to capture, wants to possess what God has given to you, correct? So by necessity, some of us as Christians, it's like we don't want to go to war. We don't like war. I just want to, you know, go on a, I don't know, on a, on a, on a cruise. But that's not what the Christian life is about. It's a life of warfare. It's a life where we have to battle. And so sometimes what takes place is the enemy attacks us and we can either sit back passively and take what he, he doles out to us or we can respond. But then there's other times when we ourselves as individuals must initiate aggression against the enemy. And what do I mean by that? What I'm saying is that the original commission we know in Genesis was that humankind would multiply, would fill the earth, would subjugate it, and would conquer, would, would exercise dominion on the earth. The gospel is simply this, that we are to preach the gospel to every language group, to every nation. We're to disciple nations. We're to preach the gospel throughout the earth. God wants us to take the gospel to the far corners of this world. So we must be engaged in warfare. And we know Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against principalities, about powers, about spiritual rulers in the wicked places in the heavenly realms. So understand this. There is a battle. There is a warfare that we are engaged in. So when we recognize that David says, okay, I'm not going to war, what is happening here? Well, first of all, we don't know if their nation was being attacked, or if they were literally, they were initiating, they were being proactive, if this was a preemptive work, uh, preemptive attack against the enemy. But it really doesn't matter because David decides that he no longer has to go to war. He sends out his mighty men, he sends out his warriors, but David stays home. And the problem with that is, first of all, David, I believe, ended up falling into both complacency and lethargy. Complacency and lethargy. What is, what is that? 
Well, first of all, David, perhaps he felt his reign was secure. You know what? I've got all this land. I've possessed all this territory. I don't need to go out to warfare anymore. And so he didn't need to go. Secondly, perhaps he was tired from a past season of war. Come on now. Listen, so what is complacency? Complacency is literally a place where we become content, where we literally, after achieving significant milestones in our lives, we regress into this place where we have a smug satisfaction with ourselves and our accomplishments. Think about that. You know, wow, look what I've done. I've done so much. Here I am. I'm standing firm for God. I no longer, you know, um, am struggling with some of the things that I used to struggle with. I'm an overcomer. I've made significant uh, grounds in my life. I've achieved things for God, and I'm stable, and I'm good. And, you know, we may even be at a place where we have financial resources. We, we really, uh, life isn't really terrible. It's quite good. We're happy. We're content. And what ends up happening in many instances in our prosperity, we end up becoming complacent. We stop seeking God. We stop going to warfare. Now listen to me. There is a contending that must take place in the life of every single Christian. God has said that we can still go to warfare, that we're still to fight, we're to still engage in spiritual combat in order to possess the things that God has promised for our lives. So every one of us, it doesn't matter where we're at, it doesn't matter what we've achieved, regardless of whether you're struggling to find your way or you've had a significant breakthrough in your life, there's still a call to go to warfare. And recognize this, in the New Testament, right, Revelation 1.6 says we are kings and priests. We're all kings and priests. God has called us. We're kings, and kings go to warfare. And we are called to go to warfare. We're called to engage. We're called to take new land, to take new territory, and to possess everything that God has promised for us. So we cannot rest content with second best. We cannot become, you know, settle in mediocrity. We've got to make sure that we're continuing to press on and to possess the very promises of God. So we cannot become smug in our satisfaction with ourselves and our accomplishments. Secondly, lethargy. Lethargy, on the other hand, is a lack of energy and enthusiasm. A lack of energy and enthusiasm. Why? Because we've grown weary because of the past seasons of war that we've been engaged in. Come on now, is there anybody who can say that? Life can be tough, and we can be beaten down to the ground time after time by the enemy to the point that we just kind of like, well, it's not in me to fight. I just don't have this desire to keep contending. My life's not too bad. Why do I need to pray? Why do I need to seek God? Why do I need to believe for greater breakthroughs? You know what? I tried that once, and wow, the warfare was incredible. And we back off, and we just settle for something that God has said is not His perfect will for our life. And that's lethargy. So we don't know what motivated David. But I know this. Many today have given up 
contending for the fulfillment of God's plan for their lives. They've come to a place where second best is good enough. Some people, mediocrity. Yeah, it's not that bad. Some people settle, settle for misery. They settle for misery. Well, my life is miserable. It's not good. It's terrible. It's difficult. But we settle for that. We don't do anything to change our lives, to press through and experience breakthrough. Now, let me just say something about David. David, we know, was a man who loved God, right? Acts 13, 22. When he was first, Acts 13, 22, which was written hundreds of years after his death, God testifies of David that I found David, a man after my own heart who would do all my will. When he was appointed to uh, replace King Saul, God spoke that. David is a man who has my heart. So he was a good man. Remember that. David loved God. David was humble in the early stages of his reign. But what was the root cause of his egregious moral failure? Well, ultimately, I believe it was pride. It was pride. In his heart, he viewed himself as superior to others and therefore exempt from serving alongside his brothers. Hmm. Let me say something. I have seen this. Come on, guys. I lived in America, right? Lynn and I. We know, all the sup- we know many of the superstar celebrity pastors. Personally, we do. And let me tell you, when you get to that place where you're so popular because you've got the TV ministry that reaches millions of people, you've got the large church, you've got the money, you've got everything that you need, and you somehow think that you're better, you're superior, or you're at least different than everyone else. And what ends up happening is you isolate yourself from people. Now, think about this. I know. I've seen it. The bodyguards, I recognize that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a bodyguard. Some of them need it. But I do recognize this, that when the service is over, they're gone. They, you know, they have their, their, their fortress that they retreat to in the church. And they don't interact with the people. Now, the problem with that is that that's not the way Jesus was. Jesus lived among the people. He walked among the people. He literally was in the midst of the people. He did not withdraw to some, you know, uh, spiritual uh, sanctuary in the wilderness, but he literally was a man who lived and walked among the people. Yes, he spent time in prayer. Yes, he withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Yes, he knew that it was very important that his time with the Father was, was really guarded. I recognize that. And that certainly is, is the other extreme where people are so busy, leaders are so busy doing things that they neglect their time with God. And it's kind of like when you go on an airplane and they, they tell you, you know, just, just before you leave that, you know, in the case of uh, cabin pressure dropping in this plane, an oxygen mask will fall down in the likely event, right? I always say that in the unlikely event. But then what happens? Make sure that if you have small children that you put your mask on first. Why? Because if you can't breathe, you're not going to be able to help the children. And there's a place 
where God is saying in our relationship with him, we have to guard our own uh, spiritual condition first. We have to make sure that the oxygen of the Spirit of God is breathing into our lives, that we're connected to the life of the Spirit. Otherwise, we won't be able to help other people. So we, we recognize this, but then the other extreme is people that separate themselves from others. They don't have time to minister to people. And I realize, again, there's a place for, for, for that. And I recognize there's some people that really don't need ministry. They just need to obey the Word of God. Come on now. And I realize that. But the bottom line is there is a place where God says all of us are called to walk alongside our brothers and our sisters. We're all to be available. We're all part of one body. We're all in, in, literally enlisted in the same army, and we serve in different capacities. So we have to recognize that in that place, we stay humble, we stay pure, and we begin to love people. Can I tell you something about ministry? And life is like this, so it's not just ministry. But in ministry, and I know people, for example, police officers, social workers, people that, that deal with problems, it's difficult to keep your heart pure. It's difficult when all you see is the nasty underside of humanity. When you're dealing with such problems constantly and, and you're dealing with things, it's very easy to become cynical. So we have to guard our hearts so that we don't get bitter, that we have to stay sweet. We have to make sure that we stay focused on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we love people. Even people, hello, that don't deserve our love because how many know we don't deserve God? We never deserve God's love. We still love them. We still respect them. We still honor them even though we don't necessarily you know, enable them in the healthy, toxic lifestyle. So we recognize there's a place where we must all walk before God in humility. And David was called to always make sure that in his lifetime that he stayed humble. In fact, God made a provision to help this to take place so that kings would never become, you know, elevated in their own opinion above their brothers. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 through 20, instruction is given regarding the king when he assumes the throne of the nation. It says, also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write to himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests and the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he, the king, listen to this, shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the works of this law and these statutes. Why? That his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children, in the midst of Israel. So what happened? Something began to break down in David's life before this occasion when he committed adultery and murder. Something was happening that maybe most people were not privy to in David's life. David had come to a place where he considered himself more important, more special, 
above other people because he was the king. He was wealthy. He was powerful. He had anything that he wanted in his time. Come on now. Can you imagine, before we point the finger, having all the money you ever want, having all this power, having all these people under you, and it's so easy if we're not careful to stay in the presence of God and to continue in his word that our hearts would become lifted up and that we could become proud. So David sins. David falls short of God's glory. Why? Because he had neglected to keep the word of God in front of him. His heart had grown cold. Pride had overtaken him. He was no longer a seeker of God. And to add insult to injury, after he sinned, he demonstrated absolutely no remorse. Absolutely no remorse. After he sinned, there's no remorse. From the time that he committed adultery, and we know that, that Bathsheba became pregnant, had her husband killed, from the time that occurred to the day when God's prophet Nathan was sent to, to rebuke and to confront David, some scholars say it could have been nine months. Nine months. So here's David carrying on. There's no indication of remorse. There's no sense that he's sorrowful for what had taken place. But the day finally comes when God said, okay, enough is enough. I'm going to expose David. David, I thought, well, I've gotten away with the perfect crime. No one is aware of what's happened. Maybe, you know, just Joab and, and a couple of my, my uh, main soldiers, my leaders, my captains. But most people are not aware of what's happened here. But the Bible tells us that the all-seeing eyes of God saw everything that it, David had done. The Lord was well aware of the king's actions. And in 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, we read, But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. The thing that David did displeased the Lord. So David is approached by the prophet Nathan. Nathan tells him a story about a rich man who had many sheep and then one, a poor man who had just one little lamb. And he said, a traveler from a far-off country came, and he says to the rich man, please prepare me something to eat. You know, give me some lamb chops. Give me something to eat. And what ends up taking place is the rich man says, no, 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 I can't spare anything. And he literally takes the lamb from the poor man, this one lamb that he had, who was like a pet to him, a member of his own family, and they take that. And David, when he hears this story, he says, that's unjust. That's wrong. That's evil. Surely the man who has done such a thing should die. And then Nathan points his bony finger at him and he says, David, you are the man. Wow. David, you're the man. You're the man in this story. And God says, David, have I not given you so much? I've given you so much. Money, riches, power, wives, wives. And if that were not enough... Hello, Discover here to explain our cash back match. Here's how it works. We give you cash back for using your Discover card on the things you were going to buy anyway. Then we match that cash back in your first year. And that's why we call it cash back match. Now to recap and say cash back one more time. We match all the cash back you've earned at the end of your first year automatically. Discover. Exceptionally common sense.
Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations apply. I'm happy to give you more. That's what the Lord says. Huh. But David, what you've done is evil. You've killed this man. You've stolen his wife. You've done evil in my sight. And at that moment, David cries out in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Understand that the very least that should have happened to David was that he was deposed from his throne. Under the law, he should have been stoned to death. But God, in his mercy, says to David through the prophet, you're not going to die. You're going to live. I'm going to keep you and the throne. You're going to live, David, because of my mercy. Because of my mercy. Now, we know there were consequences to David's sin. We know the child died. We know there would be warfare against him from his family the rest of the days of his life. And as you continue to read the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel in particular, you see that from that point on, you see it was just a terrible thing that David went through with his family, sons rising up against him, revolting, trying to take the kingdom from him. There are consequences to our sins, by the way. I know we love to preach forgiveness and grace, and David certainly was a recipient of God's mercy. But do you recognize there are consequences to our sins? We just say, well, God, I said, I'm sorry. Good. Let's go back to the way it was. Or even better. And God says, no, it's not always going to be that way. There are times because of the choice that we've made. I've known people who've been in ministry, pastored massive churches, had media ministries, and now they have no influence. They've lost everything because of committing sin, because of terrible moral failure. He said, well, God can restore anyone. Yes, he can. Thank God for his forgiveness and his mercy. But you understand that even though God may forgive you, not everyone will. That's sad. I recognize that. That's not the way it should be. People should forgive. But in many instances, they won't. There's been a breach of trust. There's been a breach in that sense. And it takes time to mend that. It takes time. And sometimes that restoration is never fulfilled completely. You see, the thing we know about David was when he confessed his sin and God had mercy on him, he recognized there were consequences and he didn't argue with God. He didn't say, God, that's not fair. God, come on, God, I, I confessed it to the prophet. I told him what I did was wrong. Come on, God, remove the consequences. This isn't fair. He didn't say that. We read in Psalm 51 that he acknowledged God's justice. He said, God, you've done what is right. You've been just. You've punished me according to your righteousness, and I accept the consequences of the choices I've made. I thank you, God, that I'm alive. I thank you, God, that I'm forgiven. I thank you, Lord, that I've been reconciled to you. 
And more importantly, and most importantly, was David's realization that he was called to be, first and foremost, God's son, God's servant. Many people today, they have no sense of purpose, no sense of identity if they lose a position. It happens in life. People who retire, what am we going to do, you know? What am I going to do now? I no longer work. What am I? And what happens so many times is I recognize that, that ministry and, and work is part of God's uh, purpose for our lives. But there's a place where we have to come to rest that no matter what is happening in my life, I'm just thankful that I'm God's son. I'm thankful that I can know him. I'm thankful that I can have a relationship with him and I can walk in that place. So when it takes place... After David's sin and his confession, he cries out in, in the Psalms. In fact, David wrote two Psalms after his sin. He wrote Psalm 38 and Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, verse 17, the Holy Spirit reveals David in a different light. He's now deeply remorseful for what he's done. David cries out to God in despair. He says this, you're not looking for sacrifices. You're not looking for burnt offerings. But what you really want, God, the sacrifices you desire are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. The sacrifices that God desires, what God is wanting from a man, a woman, is a sacrifice of a broken spirit, and a contrite heart. This is what God is looking for. He's not looking for people that are perfect, but he's looking for people that are penitent. He desires the people that are truly remorseful for what they've done. And may I submit to us this morning that when we recognize the severity of our sin, and it is a problem, guys, it is a problem where we don't realize what Jesus did on the cross. Do you realize that it was our sin that put him there? It was what we did that put him on the cross. And he suffered, and he was, he was mutilated, and he was beaten because of the severity of our sin and the penalty that we deserved. And we just go, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. There has to come a place of revelation where we recognize the fullness of what God did in Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He who knew no sin, he who was perfect, became sin or a sin offering for us, that we might be made righteous. He took upon himself what we deserved. And we must walk in a place of accepting and appreciating and valuing everything that Jesus did for us. God is looking for a people who walk with him with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. There's a very interesting verse. It's found in the book of Zephaniah. It actually says that God will make the lame a remnant. 
the lame are remnant. If you're lame, it means there's something wrong with your walk, correct? It means there's something wrong. There's a recognition that something has happened in your life. There's something that takes place where God so breaks you that from the rest of the day of your life, so to speak, you walk with a limp. You walk as a lame person. You're, you're no longer able to run and do the things that you used to do. But now you're at a place where you recognize that God has brought brokenness into your life. What is brokenness? Brokenness in the biblical sense is not debilitation. God isn't trying to cripple or incapacitate us. That's the devil's intention, not our gracious heavenly Father's plan. In Psalm 147, verse 3, we're informed that the Lord heals the broken. God brings healing to the broken. So what is this brokenness that God so desires to be part of the nature of His people? Well, the word broken in Hebrew means to burst. It can be translated literally and figuratively. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 6, the same Hebrew word is used of God when He says that His heart was bursting or breaking over His people who were worshiping other idols. And it literally alludes to a person that is gripped with a strong conviction and deep sorrow. A person who realizes that God has called them to a place of deep sorrow. You know, one of the things that bothers me about a lot of stuff that's happening in so-called revival movements today is the lack of brokenness. The lack of brokenness. Everybody just wants to be full of joy and laugh. But you know, it says in the book of James chapter 4, let your laughter be turned into mourning. There's a place where we have to cry out. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's a place where we recognize that God is saying, my son, my daughter, I want to heal you, but you need to be broken. You need to be broken. So, so what does it mean? It's not being sorry like that you were caught. And it's, and it's not being sorry that, wow, now my life's changed. I can't continue to live that way. What a bummer. That's not at all what it is. The Bible says there are two types of sorrow. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, we're told godly sorrow produces repentance, which leads to salvation or deliverance. Not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The New Living Translation puts it this way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. When we think about those who were sorrowful in the New Testament, I immediately think of, of, of Jesus' two apostles, two disciples. We look at Peter, and we look at Judas Iscariot. Peter denied the Lord. Peter failed. 
But Peter was genuinely sorrowful and he repented. Judas Iscariot transgressed. He, he committed sin. He betrayed Jesus, but he didn't repent. His sorrow led to death. There is a sorrow that is, well, now that this has happened, I can't shake the guilt. I can't shake the sense that now my life has changed. And people walk in condemnation and they don't recognize that God is a God of conviction but not condemnation. The, the sorrow that God bring, works in our life brings us to a place where we take responsibility for what we've done rather than point the finger at other people or even blame God or sit around and mope about how now my life has changed. Now, because of what I've done, because of this, because of that, then now I can't do what I was able to do. But the reality is the reason why it happened is because we did something that has consequences. And we're not really sorrowful if we're still pointing the finger at other people and blaming them for the very things that we were responsible for. So godly sorrow works to repentance and to salvation. And there's no regret. Listen, David was a man who possessed a broken and a contrite heart. And I mentioned Acts 13, 22, where the father testifies of David hundreds of years after his death. And he says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Why was he a man after God's own heart? Who will do all my will. He will do all my will. David sinned. David messed up badly. But David repented and continued going forward to do all of God's will for his life. That's true repentance. That's true brokenness. You see, there's something that we, we can't escape from here. In the scripture, in Psalm 32, verse 8 and 9, God gives us insight into what true brokenness is. Psalm 32, verse 8 and 9, the Lord says, I want to guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. And the Lord says, do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. I want to guide you. I want you to hear my voice. I want to lead you in the way that you should go because I really have amazing plans for your life. But don't be like an unruly, self-willed horse that balks and resists the commands of its rider. Submit to me. Let me show you things you've never seen and take you to places you've never been. Let me lead you. And the Bible tells us in James 3.13... That a person who's truly repentant shows by their good conduct that their works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So there's something here that we have to look at. Brokenness and meekness are inextricably linked. A broken person is a meek person. Interestingly, the word for meek in the New Testament Greek is praos. The New Testament term was borrowed from the Greek military, and it relates to the art of horse training. The Greek army, listen to this, 
would search for horses in the mountains and would intentionally select the most spirited and wild of the herd. Wow. Okay, we need some horses for the army. So what horse should we get? Well, that one's quite tame. He's quite passive. Let's get that. No, 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 no. Let's get the most rebellious, unruly, wild horse. Let's find that horse. And then after that, that horse, would, those horses would then be taken to the army camp to be broken in. After months of training, they sorted the horses into four categories. Some of the horses they discarded. They just said, no, can't work with these horses. They, they're too stubborn. They won't break. They won't submit. Can't use those horses. But they were all stubborn and rebellious in the beginning. And then there was another category where they would, some of the horses that were broken, they, would be made, they were made useful for bearing burdens. And then the third category of broken horses is they would be selected for ordinary duty. But there was the fourth category that these horses who were wild and unruly, some of them would be selected and used in the fourth category, and that is they would be graduated to become a war horse. A war horse. You see, when a horse passed the conditioning required, its state was described by the Greeks as praus. They're meek. The word praus in Greek literally means power under authority, strength under control. The war horse was very strong. The war horse was still very passionate. However, it had learned to bring its nature and temperament under discipline, and it was no longer unruly and rebellious. A war horse was broken to the point that its nature was now completely submitted to its rider. It would thunder into battle. It would stand unflinchingly in the face of cannon fire in the midst of the battle. Yet it would respond to the slightest touch of the rider and even stop at a whisper. It was now praus. It was meek. It was broken. Do you understand that true brokenness in the life of the believer is manifested in our no longer resisting the will of God for our lives? But we respond in obedience from a willing heart to the purpose for which he's called us and created us. The word broken has another meaning. It literally means to bring to birth. To burst when a woman's water breaks. She's now at a point where she's ready to deliver. And God, the Hebrew word literally means to bring to birth. Those who are truly broken before God are now able to birth and bring forth his purposes and plans on the earth. Yeah. 
You see, when we're broken before God, wherever we go, we are able to change the very atmosphere. You know, the Bible tells us in Mark 14, verse 3, that there was this woman who was a very sinful woman. Some say it was Mary Magdalene. And she saw that Jesus was in town. At least she was Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. And as he sat at the table, this woman came, and she had this alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard. And she broke the flask and poured it over Jesus' head. John chapter 12, verse 3 says that the house was filled with the fragrance of that oil. Do you understand that when we're broken, we release the fragrance of Christ? Only broken people release the life and the fragrance of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are, being, are perishing. We are the fragrance of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, or one translation says jars of clay, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Next verse. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. We are always caring about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. We are broken like this alabaster box that was smashed open, like that jar of clay that is broken. And Gideon's army, with a, as it was broken, the light of the glory shone forth. It's a place of brokenness. It's a place where God says, I can work in your life. I can use you. You will release the fragrance of my knowledge everywhere you go because you're broken. And so this morning, I want to ask us the question, what type of horse are you? Are you a horse that God said, I'm sorry, I just can't use you? You're too set in your ways. You're too... Too, too intent on doing your will. You might be a horse here this morning that God wants to use you to bear burdens. That's a good thing. We need people that can bear the burdens of others. Jesus was a burden bearer. We need people that can carry other people. We need people that can support and serve and hold up others and, and, and help even hold up the hands of other people that are in leadership and ministry. We need those. And then the ordinary horse, the person that it's maybe the behind-the-scenes person. You, you aren't necessarily uh, in the limelight. You aren't necessarily on the platform or up front, but you are an ordinary horse in the sense that God is saying, I need you, you're important, what you're doing is significant, never devalue or, or a, a disappreciate what it is I've called you to do. I need you, but I, you still have to be broken. Some of you might be war horses this morning. 
You know, we look at those God that is used in history, and God, we look at the John G. Lakes, and we look at the Catherine Coleman's and the Amy Semple McPherson's, and we look at all of these that God used in astonishing ways to release the fragrance of his life. And do you recognize that there was a time, some of them, I realize, stumbled like David, but there, for the most part, these were broken people. These were people whose only intention was to do the will of God. When God spoke to them gently in that still small voice, just like that rider who just had to go like that, no bit, no bridle, no saddle, just a little nudge, just a little whisper, and the horse responds because it's so broken, so trained. We know the voice of God. He doesn't have to yell at us. He doesn't have to constantly slam doors in our face because we're so persistent in doing our own will. But he speaks to us in a still small voice. And whether we turn to the left or to the right, Isaiah says, we hear a voice behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it. You see, these were broken people. These were people that surrendered everything to Jesus. Not my will. Not what you want. God, what you desire. Not what I desire. What you desire. Not what people want. Not what people try to put on me. But what you want. God, I want to be a war horse. I want to be like one who can go into the thick of the battle in the heat of the battle. And I will stand because I'm praus. I'm broken. I'm submitted to you. We want the power. We want the glory. Some of us do. We want breakthroughs. We want prosperity. We want success. But are we willing to be broken. The sacrifices God's looking for is what? A broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Broken to birth forth his purposes on the earth. Hear that? Is that America cheering or a sausage patty sizzling to perfection? It's time to cheer for Egg McMuffin and fresh cracked eggs at McDonald's. It's time to wake up to the aroma of freshly baked biscuits and treat yourself to a real honest-to-goodness morning meal. Breakfast, it's on at McDonald's. Now get any breakfast sandwich for just 2 bucks. Available only through the app. Mobile order and pay available at participating McDonald's. McD app download and registration required. Drive less, save more. Ride Coda with the Transit app. Download today for a 450 credit. There's a new way to pay at Coda.